lot. Um, kind words. I'm excited to, uh, to be here this morning. I am in what's called the marketplace, the workplace. I was formerly on staff with uh, Campus Outreach, and so I spent some time in the ministry and transitioned off and am excited about what God can and will do in the workplace and in the city and what we're to do as we wait for Jesus' return, which is what we're going to talk about today in Matthew 24 and 25. When I was in high school, which was not all that long ago, there was a video game that came out called Halo 2. Anybody ever play that? Oh, yeah. It, it, it kind of took the world by storm, and it was the day after Christmas. I had gotten it for Christmas. I was sitting in this lounge chair that uh, was specific for video games, surround sound, and I'm sitting there, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, sun shining on a December day, but it's cold, and I'm in my underwear, no shower, and all I hear is this, what sounds like a trickling noise downstairs. My parents had a rather large house at the time, and I'm fully engaged in this video game. I'm not paying any mind. I've probably sat there from, you know, 9 in the morning, and it's now 3 in the afternoon, and for about 30 minutes, I've been hearing this noise, and all of a sudden, I hear what sounds like a fire engine has parked itself in my house and has the lights and sirens on, and obviously, it's a rather startling noise, okay? Very startling. So I get up. I don't know what's going on, but I run downstairs, and I turn right, and the hallway is a pretty large hallway. I mean, it's probably the full length of the, of the stage, and I'm sprinting, and what I don't see is water all over the downstairs, about 1,200 square feet in just the kitchen, one of the living rooms, and a guest bedroom. And I bust it in my underwear, and I slide about 20 feet and slam into the pantry door, okay? And I look up, and all I can see is water gushing out of all the recessed lighting. It looked like the, the showers that have multiple shower heads pouring out of the recessed lighting, and I thought it was going to be a fire, but I really wasn't sure. I had no idea what I was walking into. I had no idea how to turn the water off. So the first thing that I did, which is what every high school kid does, is they call their mom. Mom, there's water pouring out of the recessed lighting in our house, gushing out. What do I do? And she's laughing at me. You would think she'd be freaking out. She's laughing at me, and she says, well, I'll be home in, in 20 minutes. She's getting all the the post-Christmas sales, she's shopping, and I'm like, what do I do? So, you know, with, the, with the, my very rational sense of uh, state of mind and this state of panic, I go and I get all the blankets, all the towels in the house, and I just say, well, there's not enough, but I'll just lay with what's here on the ground, I guess, you know, as I watch this helplessly in my underwear soaking wet, pouring out, of the, pouring out of the lights, right? So my mom pays some guys that are building houses next door, come and turn the water off, but I was totally caught by surprise, totally unexpected. I had no idea what to do. I, I, was, I was there totally aimless, totally helpless, and totally not ready, okay? So we come into a passage here in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. You can turn there. I'm not going to read it quite yet. But the disciples there with Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, they've been with him all this time, and uh, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. 
He's been talking to the Pharisees. He gives the woes. And they're very amazed by the structure of this temple. They're fascinated by it. They're in awe of it. And Jesus turns to them and says, one day, every stone that you see is going to crumble one day. Oh. And now, they know Jesus. They're not sure exactly what he means, but they know that he means something, right? Maybe there's something implied, but they ask him about it, and we see that later on in the next couple verses there, that they approach him privately, the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and say, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean? And he continues to explain the end of the age, the signs that are indicating this, and that nobody knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. But one of, day, one of these days, the Son of Man will return, and then it will be swift as the flood of Noah. Therefore, right, stay awake, for we don't, we don't know the day or the hour that our Lord's coming back. And so throughout Matthew 24 and, uh, and 25, we see Jesus explaining in really nine different ways, nine different passages about how he's going to return, signs of, signs of the end of the age, but to be watchful and to be active. So we see two parables afterward, right, in Matthew 25. The first is about ten virgins, okay? Ten virgins that represent vigilance and ready and being prepared for the bridegroom's return. Half of them are ready, the other half are not. The bridegroom comes in the night, and they're not ready. Some of them are not ready, and the other are, and they get to participate. So the moral is be watchful, be ready, and be in a state of eager expectancy. And then the second parable that we arrive at and what we'll spend our time in today is that we are in a state of work. We're not in a state of inactivity as the church, but diligent work in what we should be doing until Jesus comes back. And it's important for us to remember who Jesus is talking to in this parable. It's with the disciples privately on the Mount of Olives, their favorite hangout spot. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the Scripture. God, thank you so much for this church. Thank you that we have a church that understands stewardship. Thank you that we have a church that is fluent with the gospel, that understands their calling of work, that understands, Jesus, that you have put us in roles to impact this city and that we can pull our resources together and go to work with you, Lord. That it's you that saved us, it's you that's redeemed us, it's you that's brought us into a kingdom of light, and we get to worship here this morning together with each other and with you. And so I pray that this morning that we would be drawn to intimacy with you, that we would be drawn to a greater confidence in what you've called us to do in the city, in our lives, through the workplace, and through the talents that you've given us. So Jesus, I pray that I would clearly portray your word this morning and that Holy Spirit, you would be with us. So the text is on the screen. I'll read 14 through um, 30 here. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. 
and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground, and here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so this can be a pretty hard parable, right? To see the gospel, the good news of the gospel immediately, right? And so if you read this, if you read this by yourself, isolated maybe from the rest of the Bible, you would likely look at this and walk away and think, that's an unfair master. It's unfair to give people different amounts, right? They don't have the same amount of talents. The master's love is contingent upon the servant's work, and really the only way to enter into the joy of the master is to feel the full weight of, I've got to go out, I've got to go do something, I've got to go to work, and then we feel, and we leave here today feeling the full heaviness and weight of some works-based righteousness, totally contrary to the gospel story, right? It's pretty easy if we read it like that to walk away and feel and feel that way. But what I love about Luke, what I love about our church, and, and if you've been here long enough, you know that Luke has like this staple phrase, right, when he illustrates the gospel that the person of Jesus came to live the perfect life that you cannot live and die the sinner's death that you deserve, totally absor- absorbing the full wrath of God reserved for you and being raised again on the third day, having conquered death, ascending into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Grace given to you, totally despite you, despite your work, right? Fully known, fully loved, fully accepted by the Father through Christ's redeeming work on the cross. For you. That's the gospel story. That's the picture that that we have as believers. I'm fully loved, fully known. By God, fully accepted by Him, despite my work. Yet we come to a parable in Matthew 25 explicitly talking about work and what the church does in light of Jesus' return. So 
this parable is, uh, is about what the church does in light of being saved in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we respond, not working to be saved in Christ. And it's not really a parable about work explicitly. It's rather a parable about faithfulness, what we do with what God has entrusted to us. So maybe some of you are like me. I, I've got to see, I've got to like break down all the different characters in the story. I just, that's the way I think. I've got to see the 30,000 foot view and kind of dissect it. So first we see the master, okay, the representative of Christ here in this parable, the absolute owner, the absolute proprietor of all things, all people, his church. And through his hands, all things are created. And through his hands, all things are delivered. The master. And secondly, we've got the servants. People who are subject to the master, born in his house, bought with his money, devoted to his praise, and enrolled in his work. Employed by the master. And one day, we see that the master is going away on a long journey, an indefinite amount of time. If you backtrack a little bit in Matthew 24, Jesus does not give a time. He says, nobody knows when I'm coming back. Same thing with this master. They don't know when he's coming back, but we know that one day he is coming back. He is going to return. So a general observation maybe about these uh, subjects, the servants and the master, is that we know for sure that the master trusts his servants because they're giving them talents. The master gives the servants talents. Okay, so one talent is an astronomical amount of money. It's the largest unit of money in that era, in that time period. And its estimated weight, says scholars, is between 50 and 30 pounds of money. So no wonder the guy goes and buries it in his backyard, right? I mean, that's a lot of coin. What are you gonna, where are you going to put that? Where are you going to carry that around safely? So let's say the average uh, wage is 15 to 20 years of, of wages. Let's say the average wage in Knoxville, Tennessee is about $50,000, okay? So what the master's entrusting to one man is $5 million, the other $2 million, and the other $1 million. Okay, is that an insignificant amount of money for anybody in this room? I don't think so. That's a, lot, that's a lot of money. Even if you got $1 million, I mean, that's a pretty good size amount of money just for somebody to say, hey, I'm leaving. Would you mind taking care of this and multiplying it for me? It's yours to trade as you please. So he leaves his own goods to them. And really, the servants understand that this is not their money. It's not theirs to do whatever they want, and ultimately, the servants have no intrinsic value on their own, except for what the master has given them. The talents that the master has given them ultimately is what gives them their worth, right? They've got nothing to go and trade with and barter with and multiply unless the master graciously gives talents to them. So they've got no perceived value, and the value that they do have is given by the master and they know that. It's not theirs to keep. He didn't say, hey, go and uh, go spin this. I know you've got this gray beat up donkey. Go buy, in the, go buy this very rare albino donkey. 
so you can ride into town very luxuriously, right? Or, or the, the bigger camel. This camel's got two humps. You go buy one with four, right? They didn't, they didn't go and do that. They understood that this is not their money. They didn't go expand their wine cellar. You know, they didn't go buy more bread. What it says is that the master delivered his own goods to them with the intended purpose that they use his goods to work and use the massive resource that he's given them to go and multiply for his own profit and for his own good. The master gives him a job. He doesn't want any of his servants idle, and he gives them the resources to go and do. So four things I'd like us to see in this parable. There's a whole lot, but we're going to go through four things that I see, okay? So the first thing is that the parable of the talents teaches us that our work ultimately has purpose. So when you go to work tomorrow, maybe you're off tomorrow, when you go to work on Tuesday, whatever that is, your work has purpose. It has value. And I know that Luke has preached over this several times and has done a phenomenal job of uh, depicting what work is for us as a church. But I'll touch on it again uh, briefly here. In Genesis 1, we see God giving Adam work. His job is to steward the resources that God has given him. And this is before the fall, so we can conclude a couple things here. One, we're created for work. And our work brings glory to God. That was, that was our job. Adam had a job. Go and multiply the resources that I've given you. And B, the work was good. And Adam both had purpose and received pleasure from his work. It was good. It wasn't tainted. But as a result of the fall, our work is filled with thorns and thistles, hardships. It can feel like a chore. And things take a lot more work, right? Blood, sweat, and tears for things to produce. If you want something to come out of the ground, you got to go and use a rake and dig it up, till it, sweat. Yet Christ, he's redeemed work. For believers, we have a different work. All believers, all people really are called to glorify God and make him known, to enjoy him. But as believers, we understand that we've got a new purpose. We've got a really a redeemed purpose in our work. The original purpose to bring glory to God, God, we couldn't do that, but Jesus has redeemed it through the work of the cross. And now our work, as we wait for Jesus' return, through your vocation, whatever that is, whether it's full-time ministry or whether you are uh, working in selling something, if you're in a factory, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're a mom, if you're a parent, whatever it is, is to bring glory to God. And to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations as we see Jesus commission his disciples, his workers, to do several passages later. So in the here and now, our calling is to diligently work toward his great purpose for the master's gain. In your vocation, as you punch your time card on Monday, it's so that you can go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what it's for. So without work, no grounds tilled, no stones turned over, and no fruit ultimately will come. So our work has a purpose. It's so that we can go and multiply. Go tell people about about Jesus and use the money and whatnot that we have to go and do that. So secondly, the parable of the talents teaches us the master has given us everything we need to do in order to do what he's called us to do. He's given you every resource 
So what Jesus says in this parable is he's given every single one of these servants a fortune. Even the guy with one, right? Even the guy with one, a million dollars. That's a whole lot. You could do a whole lot of damage with a million dollars. Now, it doesn't mean everybody gets the same, right? The exact same. But I've given every one of you a fortune. And he says, I've entrusted this to you. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the fortune that I've given you? And it points to us. This doesn't mean health and wealth, right, necessarily. Regardless of who you are in this room today, whatever your lot is, God has given you a fortune. What, what do we have in this room that God has not graciously given to us? Like, what can we claim that we've done on our own? Your intellect? No, it's been given to you. Your house? No, it's, it's been given to you. Every dollar you earn, every relationship that you have, your home, your furniture, the places that you host people in, it's all been given to you, all been entrusted to you, just like the master entrusts his talents to his servants. God entrusts to us, his people, a fortune. So how are we using it, right? That's the question here that points to us. If you're a believer in this room, God has not only given you, right, the physical air, oxygen as we sit in these seats today, life, but you've got the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ inside of you and dwelling in you, you are perfect for the calling that God has for you, wherever you are. Not because you're perfect, right? but because he's made you spotless before him. And he's given you his spirit by grace to accomplish the mission of going and making disciples to the ends of the earth. It empowers us. It gives us hope, and it gives us purpose. And the mission plays itself out in a plethora of ways, but in the general sense, we're all called to do the same thing, right? To go and make disciples, go and multiply and enjoy Jesus. Now, what does that look like in a room this size? Man, it looks, it looks really different for us, right? We're all kind of wired differently, which brings me to my third point. The parable of the talents shows us we're not all created equal. Whoa. So we're perfectly equipped, right? Perfectly equipped for the mission that God has given us. In the general sense, but more people just have more equipment. Some people have less equipment. Some people are more talented. Some people have more intellect. Some people have less. Some people have bigger houses. Some people have smaller houses. Look in verse 15. Take a look again. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. So the master knew his servants, right? Born in his house, bought with his money, devoted to his praise, He knew their track record. He knew who they were. He saw their ability, their talents. He he knew that the guy with five, that he gave five to, was going to be more capable of diligently working with five and managing five than the one with two and the one 
with one. He knew that. He knew his servants, right? And some of you, maybe you're thinking like, man, that is just not fair. That's just not fair. It makes you want to start throwing rocks, maybe. Maybe at me, maybe at God, maybe at a scripture. I don't know. But you might be thinking, why, why would God give different people different amounts? Like, why don't we all get the same amount? Why, wouldn't a good God give everybody the same? I don't think so. Because we, we live in a culture that says if you work hard enough, you can be anything that you want to be. You can be the best in the world. So if you want to be an Olympic athlete one day, you can be an Olympic athlete. If you want to be a doctor one day, you can be a doctor. If you want to be whatever it is, we live in a culture that says just, just go and do it. But we all know that's not the reality, right? We have the same opportunities in that regard, but we don't have the same capacities. We're just wired differently, and that's okay. So when we go home today, right, the application is not to tell your kid, like, no, you cannot be a pro baseball player, buddy. You can't do it. You're just not going to be able you don't have what it takes. That's not the application, right? But it's also not a sermon about, hey, we can be whoever we want to be because God's just equipped us and we're all, we're all the same, right? That's not true. God has wired us up perfectly and differently to be exactly where you are and who you are to in which God has called you to be on mission. He's wired you up that way. Each of us are created the same in value, right, but different, different effectiveness, different our abilities. So by wiring, I mean, that could be your genetic makeup, gifts, and talents, resources. Culture, though, hasn't it just made it really easy to just, I mean, the first thing you do, right, let's say you get on Facebook right after this, or you're scrolling through it now, right, and maybe not, I don't know. And you see the first couple pictures, right? The, what you do is you compare yourself immediately. I mean, it's just what we do is we start, why does social media exist so we could see the world? And we start comparing ourselves. And, and this guy that discipled me in college, he told me that you always, his name's Elisha Lawrence, he said that when you compare yourself to people, you think one of two things. Both are prideful, right? You either find yourself feeling less than or greater than whatever you're comparing to. I feel inferior or I feel superior in whatever way. And culture looks at verse 15 and says, God's not fair to create people differently with different sets of skills and ability. Why don't I get to be like this guy over here, or that girl over there? Why don't I get to have, you know, the big house on the corner or what, whatever it is? And we start beginning to feel this sense of inadequacy, this misconfigured view of God, right? And we begin to shape who we are in this misconfigured view of God. And we do exactly what Adam does, our father, right? As descendants of Adam in Romans 1, we start beginning to believe in suppressing truth that's not true. We live in a world that does the same thing. Who's been a carnival in here? East Tennessee Carnival. Anybody? Come on. Yeah, that's right. They had the Texas State Fair. I'm from Texas originally, and man, that thing was big. I love carnivals. I love fair food. I love funnel cakes, fresh battered corn dogs dunked in blazing hot canola oil, right? It's delicious. I'm the guy who would go to, we had this thing called the Scarborough, State, uh, Scarborough Fair in, in Texas, and um, it was like this medieval 
fair, but I would always, I'd want like, two, I'd want two turkey legs. I just want to hold two of them, and I love fair food. I love the fair, the rinky-dink rides, right, traveling all over the carnival. It's a blast for me. I have not been with kids. I can imagine it would not be a blast going with young kids, but when I, when it was just me or Brianna and I, we go to these things, right, and eat all this crazy food, but one thing that I think is really fun and really love about the fair and the carnival is the House of Mirrors. You ever been in one of those, right? You go, you walk in the carnival, uh, you go into the House of Mirrors, and you look at yourself in one mirror, and your head is like four times the size of your body, or you go in the other, and you've lost 50 pounds, and you feel great, or you go in the other, and you're like 10 feet tall, and you go in the other, and you flex, and your muscles just huge, you know, it's, but it's a distorted view of, of who we are, and it's the same thing that we can tend to do when we ask the mirror on the wall, who I am. Who am I, right? Well, if I go and look in one of the carnival mirrors that doesn't really point to true north, I begin to feel inferior or, or superior in some type of way. And that's the same thing that we do when we begin to look around and say, man, God is unfair. He didn't give me the same amount. Does he love me less? Does I not have as many resources or whatever it is? And we get a sense of identity myopia, right? A nearsightedness. I can't see who I am anymore. I can't see myself through the gospel story and how the God of the universe has wired me up. And I'm looking through the wrong lens, the wrong mirror. I've got to quit looking in those. I can't compare myself. I've got to see what the gospel says I am and how the master sees me. The guy with two doesn't say, why why has that guy got five? Why has this guy got one? Why do I have one? So let's go back to parable of the, uh, sorry, not true. Um, in, our, in our wiring, right, <clears throat> I might not be as gifted, right, as Luke standing up here preaching. That doesn't mean I'm not going to get up here, right? That doesn't mean that because you're uh, less outgoing than somebody else that you can't reach your neighbor. Whether you've got five or one, it doesn't free us from, us, from idleness, It doesn't free me to be a procrastinator. It doesn't free me from inactivity on mission because I might not be as good at something or have as many resources or maybe my personality varies a little differently. I'll give you a really easy example for me. When Brianna and I first got married, we lived in this apartment. It was a great location, but... We paid $425 a month in Cookville. I mean, this little, the really little place you could walk in and immediately you felt like you were in the kitchen, living room, and dining room, okay? I mean, it was just really small. And uh, our stove, I'll never forget it. It was like this, there's nothing, there's nothing on earth. Okay, I'll tell you what, it was like those green tiles back there when you walk out before you come in. That's what color our stove was. Man, this thing was old. It was rinky-dink. And if you stood in our kitchen and you did this and you turned around, you could open every single one of the cabinets. You couldn't open the refrigerator and the oven at the same time. It was small. And if you reached your leg out, you'd be able to touch the dining room table. 
You know, I mean, it was, it was really small. And so coming from a house that was really, really big, that made it really easy to host people with a really big table, multiple living rooms, and a long hallway where you can have a slip and slide in when your house floods, okay, I felt some sense of, like, inferiority. I thought, golly, nobody wants to come to my house. I can't host people. I can't host people in here. And being in, in college ministry, you know, you can't just, it was not normal for like one person to just come over. It had to be like 10, you know, because the one person's got a friend, and then they've got a friend, and none of them feel comfortable, you know, in isolation. They all got to come. So you're like, man, how am I going to fit 10 people, 20 people in this tiny apartment? And, and it kind of crippled me. It really, it really did. It made me feel like, gosh, there's a lot of other people that have such better spaces. Why don't they do this? You know, why don't I just go and use their house and their, and it, it made me feel insecure, right? It, it crippled me. But God used it anyway, and people came over regardless, and people just show up. You know, we live like a block off campus, so people would show up at our house randomly anyway. But just because your living room or your dining room table might be smaller doesn't mean you can't invite people in your house, right? This parable clearly speaks to that. And we don't say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not wired up this way. There's a need in this city. I probably shouldn't go and meet that. Or our amount of talents, right, our amount of talents never gives us an excuse for not participating in kingdom work. So verses 16 and 18, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and uh, made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the master goes away, and we see the one with five. He went at once. He took his 400 pounds of money, maybe all at once, maybe not, but he took his 400 pounds of money and began trading right away. And the two, he goes and does the exact same thing. He goes immediately, and he makes two talents more. And the one... We see he takes his talent, and he goes, and he buries it in his backyard. And you know what? I find myself here a lot. I find myself here. I don't, I don't blame him. I don't blame the guy. It isn't, isn't it easy to look in a city, in Knox County, and the surrounding area of 600,000-plus people and say, man, so, so-and-so would They'd be really good at reaching these people. Man, if only I had more resources, maybe I could make a dent. Maybe I would start because then I'd feel like I was making an impact. Man, this neighborhood I live, live in really needs somebody like so-and-so who it's just really easy, really natural for them to have conversations with people. It would explode with the gospel if they lived here. Before I engage my neighbor, I'd better read some books about how to share the gospel with my neighbor, right? Before I share the gospel with my coworkers, I gotta spend a year here at least. I've gotta really establish myself here so that I have some value before I can engage them. When we respond to our feelings of inadequacy and our fear, what we do is we end up just like the servant in the parable. We go and bury it. We go bury our talent in the, in the backyard. 
Each one of us has been given different gifts. We all play a different role in the kingdom work, as Paul talks about. We're all members of the body, but we're different members of the body. And we pull our gifts and our resources together for a reason. So don't dig a hole and go bury the fortune you've been given. Because I'm going to miss out. I'm missing out on the joy of the master. We immediately go and do something, right? In verse 19, last thing here is the parable of the talents shows us that we're going to be held accountable. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is coming for all of us, right? Regardless of where you are in this room today, believer, non-believer, whether what you believe about the universe right here in the here and now, this master in this parable is coming back. And the Lord is coming back to settle accounts. And the servants are standing before their master as we will one day stand before the God of the universe who spoke the cosmos into existence, who's given us a fortune. And he's going to ask us, how'd it go? I've given you a fortune. Look at all the opportunities that I gave you. Look at all the resources I gave you. Look at the purpose in which I've given you. Look at your talents that I've entrusted to you. How'd it go? And we see two faithful servants. The first says, you gave this to me, and I give you five talents more. And the master's response, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, therefore I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he gets praise, and he gets a promotion. Is there a, real, is there a more satisfying thing for a, for a servant whose sole purpose is to bring pleasure to the master. His whole existence is to serve and please his master to hear anything other than, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. And notice he doesn't keep the money, right? It's not his. He's not like, well, I'll give you five, and so, and you made five more, and now you get to keep two. That wasn't it. He doesn't say, great job, buddy. It's now all yours. He doesn't request compensation for his diligence or, or, for, or for his work, right? The master's joy and delight was both their motivation and the reward. It was enough to hear Jesus say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And the response is the same from the master, the one with five and the one with two, regardless the amount of talents that we have, that we produce. God, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, you made five more and you made two more, so you get a gold star and you get a silver star and you get more joy over here and you get a little bit less joy, but you still get joy. That's not it either. Well done. Same response, regardless of their productivity, because they went and did. And this is the calling on our life, to take what God has given us, that which has been entrusted to you, that doesn't belong to you, and ask yourself, ask your spouse, what can we do? What can we do with what God has given us? Not for us, but so that his name might be great. 
so that we can have more to steward, more to multiply, more to use to spread the kingdom, spread the good news of the gospel. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, verse 28. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. I pray for Legacy Church that, and for those of us within that we would be a people with much. We would be a people with much because of how well we've stewarded God's talents that he's given us to produce. Not so that we can stand before the master and boast within ourselves, but so that we can stand before him and hear, well done. How faithful, how faithful you've been. Enter into my joy. How much joy I have to share with you. Not in an effort for our own salvation do we present an offering of a life well lived, but out of gratitude for his faithfulness toward us. And only then can we be faithful, right? We work for or at the pleasure of the Lord, driven by our love for God. We see the third servant here. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. And here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. A wicked and slothful servant, he says. Notice the different language that's referred to him than the first, right? The first we see immediately went. I knew you to be a hard man, he says. Before he even hears anything, isn't this what we do? We begin to build a verbal defense. And he begins to blame God, just like Adam. I would have done more if it weren't for you, God. If it weren't for the way that you made me, or if it weren't for the way that you were, God, I would have done a little bit more. It's the same thing Adam does in the garden blaming Eve, right? I knew you to be a hard man, says the guy, says the servant. And our culture teaches us that the goal of work really is ultimately so that we can get to better relaxation. We don't have to work anymore. Our culture teaches us, I need a better paycheck so that my time off can be more enjoyable. So I I can work less, I can have more fun, I can do more. I have a better life away from my job. I am so guilty of that. Work hard so you can work less. Really, though, the biblical perspective is that we rest, we are given rest, God given rest, God created rest so that we can work. So we can work in the mission, in the garden that God has provided for us. Not that, right, rest and relaxation are a bad thing. And the sad irony of this parable is, this, is the third servant. We see he really didn't know the master, did he? He, wouldn't, he wasn't a true servant of the master. He didn't have a proper view of the master. He didn't truly know him, and his lack of faithfulness to the master shows 
by the lack of his inaction, doesn't get to experience ever hearing enter into my joy. In verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A faithful servant of Christ is not inactive. The church is not inactive. And some of you today might be in here thinking, what does this have to do with me? Maybe you're not a, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe, maybe you are a believer, and your life is just hard right now. It's just, it's hard, and all you've heard me say is you need to go out, and you need to do more. You need to go and do more. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what this parable is saying. What I am saying and what this parable is saying, though, is that the church and God's people are not called to a life of inactivity. You've been given a fortune. And as a church, when we see things that are hard and difficult or see people hurting and lost with no Jesus in sight, we're to be there. We're not to look around and say, Man, I sure hope somebody does something here. Man, I, God, I hope that you will do something. God, do something. But rather, God, I hope you do do something. But that's why I'm here. Because you've equipped me, you've given me talents, you've given me your spirit. To go and do likewise as Christ has done to spread the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. The Lord hasn't called you into something saying, hey, I've got work for you. Man, buddy, I really hope you're up for the task. Hope you are. Not sure? I hope you are. And leave us there. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He's not a cruel master. He's not a cruel God. He's working. He's going before you, and he's working in you, and he's preparing the ground around you. Our account before the Lord is not, is not based on our productivity. It's not, because we all, have, we all have different levels even of productivity, right? We all have different skills and wiring, as we've discussed, but it's what we do, our faithfulness to the master. It's, account, it's an account of our faithfulness. That's what we're going to be settled with, Right? And Luke 10, 2, this is it. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Look, generations of God's people, generations, ever since this was said, ever since Jesus said this, people have been praying this. And we continue to pray. But we also go in haste as an answer to the prayer. We also go in haste because we know we're fully equipped. We as God's people can take risks for the Lord. We can take risks. We are free to fail. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we are free to fail. We're free to engage people. We're free to rest in our identity in who Jesus has made us to be because he's already done all the work. He's fully fulfilled it. He's fully redeemed both work, and one day he is coming back and all people will bow down before him. And that gives us a sense of peace. And all I want to hear and all I want our church to be and hear is well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in 
to the joy of your master. You've been given a fortune, Legacy Church, everybody in here. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we have no strength on our own. We have nothing. We have nothing to present to you. We have nothing to go and do that you have not given. By your grace, we have speech. By your grace, all things are given to us. By your grace, you've met us in a place of darkness and you've redeemed us and you've saved us and you've given us a mission to go and tell. And our reward is you. The reward is Jesus. Joy, satisfaction, immeasurable joy with you that you want all people to experience. You want all people to know you. And it's for your glory that we go out. It's for your glory that we multiply. It's for your glory that we can go out and say, Jesus has redeemed me, let me tell you. Let me tell you about him. It's for your joy and our good that we can give today. That we can invite our neighbors in our homes. That we can have hard conversations with people. It's all for you. It's already yours. It's all yours, and we're just merely stewards. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, our minds, that we would be a generous and active people in light of what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.